Hello, and welcome back to Biblical Time Machine. We are the only podcast in the world that has harnessed the power of time travel, and we use it to look at the historical context of the Bible. I am one of your hosts, Dave Roos, and I am here, as always, with my co-host, Helen Bond, professor of Christian origins at the University of Edinburgh and the head of the School of Divinity over there. Hello, Helen. How are you doing? Hi there, Dave. I'm doing really well. I'm just plugging the coordinates in, as always. We're going back to the first century. Thank you. Yeah, Helen is Helen's always working the time machine in the background. She's getting pretty good at it. Um, I am. (laughs) Helen, um, (laughs) today we are talking about messiahs. Um, This is this one is fascinating Mm -hmm. to me because I, like a lot of people, have always assumed a lot of things about what. You know, Jewish people, ancient Jewish people thought about the Messiah, like what that they were waiting for this, you know, heroic conquering figure that would come and and solve all their problems and usher in this, you know, kingdom of God. And of course, Jesus came along and he fulfilled these prophecies that were made in, in the in the Hebrew Bible. And it it all makes perfect sense. But I don't know. I, the guests that we're having today has some questions about that has some has some fresh ideas about you know what messiah might have meant in the ancient world and how it re- might have related to to Jesus of Nazareth so um you know this guy he's he's your colleague at the University of Edinburgh he is Matthew Novenson uh we had Matt on previously to talk about Paul and in addition to the books he's written about Paul he's also written two about messiahs one is called Christ among the messiahs the other one is called the grammar of messianism, and don't let the word grammar throw you. It is it is actually interesting. <laughs> so Matt is a senior lecturer in New Testament and Christian origins at the University of Edinburgh, where he is also the director of the Center for the Study of Christian Origins. Welcome back, Matt. How are you doing? Hey, uh, thanks. I'm doing well, <laughs> and very happy to be uh, back with you guys. Awesome. Um, all right, so. I like to start with the basics when I when I get into these these complicated subjects. So the word Messiah, I know that it comes from, you know, a, there's an ancient Hebrew word. So tell us about like where do we get the word Messiah and how was that word kind of used in in the Hebrew Bible? Where does it come up? Uh Messiah is, is Messiah is one of those uh one of a handful of uh, words, Bible words in this case, although there, um, there are other kinds of words like this that we actually have via transliteration rather than translation. Um, so the Hebrew word is Mashiach. And if you write that, well, if you write it in Greek characters, which uh, happens in the Gospel of John, for instance, it, they just transliterated Messias mm. using the letters they had in Greek. Uh, and then via Latin, that comes down to modern um, European languages. And so um, rather than translate the word, we transliterate it. We just put it in our own mm. alphabet. And um, if we translated it, it would mean uh, it's an adjective. It means anointed, like ha- having had oil poured on okay. you. Um, but rather than say anointed, we usually say Messiah which is just bringing the Hebrew word over into English um, and other modern languages do the same thing with that word. Um, so in the Bible, uh, we use it when we say Messiah, we usually mean a person. Hmm. And in the Hebrew Bible, 
there are a number of persons who are called Mashiach or anointed, especially kings and priests, okay. a couple of other people, but kings and priests. Sometimes things are anointed too mm. in the Bible, like stones and altars. And so uh, technically a Mashiach doesn't have to be a person. It can be a thing. But usually when we use it, we're using it like the Hebrew Bible used it of certain uh, very uh, distinguished kings and priests. Okay. But it, so literally if we're translating, it, it means anointed one and, and it could be anything that has been anointed, but we're usually talking about kings and priests. All right. So you have, we have that word, but then we have figures, right? We have people or, or sort of prophesied figures in the Hebrew Bible. There's that we kind of have always referred to like this stuff in Isaiah and second Samuel and stuff where there are these verses that seem to be talking about this figure that's going to come and it, and it kind of fits this definition of the Messiah that we have now that's going to conquer, you know, Israel's enemies and, and redeem the people and stuff like that is are <laughs> so the question is, are, are we from our perspective reading something into those texts about what a Messiah is that might not have been true to the people who were writing that. Anyway, the, yeah, this is something I know you get into in your book. So what, 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 what are we misreading any of that or reading too much into it? Yeah. I mean, misreading is relative, right? It, it depends how you're trying to understand something. I mean, strictly historically, since this is biblical time yes. machine, like if you're trying to understand it in a Hebrew Bible sense, in an ancient Israelite sense, then yes, we are, our normal idea of what Messiah means is a kind of misreading. Mm -hmm. But we get it. It's not just a modern misreading or rereading. We actually get it from the way in the second simple period, in the Hellenistic and Roman periods, that some Jews and then Christians were reading mm. ancient Israelite texts, right? So, so in the Hebrew Bible itself, actually, ironically, when the word Mashiach, anointed one, is used, it's almost never about some hypothetical idea ideal future person. Mm. It's about someone now or someone of the recent past. So King Saul is called a Messiah. King David is called a Messiah. The high priest mm. in, uh, in the priestly Torah on Leviticus is called a Messiah or anointed one. In the, in the Psalms, which is where I think we especially get a lot of our idiom mm. of talking about a Messiah, there's uh, often it doesn't name a name, but it's talking about a current or soon incoming king uh, in, in Judah. So it's not like a sort of hypothetical yeah. future person. It's, you know, it's the king you support presently mm. or, you know, the one that you're hoping will get um, coronated. Uh, so it's much more sort of political and contemporary. But in the Psalms, especially the language about these anointed persons, kings especially, is really vaunted, really, uh, it's really dramatic, mm. really. And, um, and although in those contexts, it probably was not prophesying someone in the indefinite future, uh, in the second temple period, especially when there, when there was not a sitting king in Israel, right? Because, uh, by this time, uh, Judea was under foreign rule of, um, Greeks and then Romans in turn, uh, those old Psalms and 
prophetic oracles about current kings or soon incoming kings were sort of read prophetically mm -hmm. as if they were about, you know, the way it would be someday. And that I think is the main way that we have received the usage of the word. Uh, and, and so it, it's a kind of misreading relative to ancient Israel, but it's, it's a misreading with a very long tradition that goes back okay. to the ancient world. Yeah. That makes sense. But so are you saying then that it's a misreading that actually does go back to around about the time of Jesus then? So by the time of Jesus, are people reading these texts in the light of a kind of a, a, a future because, because these are the people who are living under foreign rule and they're sort of, you know, looking for, for some, yes. some great, great utopia? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so a classic example is uh, the, the Greek Jewish text, the Psalms of Solomon, mm -hmm. which comes from the first century BCE from the early Roman period. And it writes Psalms, Jewish Psalms that formally sound like the biblical book of Psalms. And there's two of them, uh, two of these Psalms that uh, are written in the mode of the, the old biblical Psalms of David. Um, psalms about the coronation of the king, but the ones written in the Roman period are very explicitly uh, sort of future-oriented mm -hmm. and eschatological. Mm -hmm. Say, oh God, send the Messiah, the son of David, to uh, to deliver us and to purify the temple and so on and so forth. So, I mean, that illustrates this, you know, uh, it's the, the, the reuse of a biblical genre and, and idiom after the, the the nation has been uh, occupied and, and ruled by Gentiles for a long time, it, it's it's very explicitly sort of directing it toward the the future, and that's the kind of ideological background to some of the usage then that we find, for instance, in the Gospels mm -hmm. and in uh, yeah. So in that in that context, that like you know first century. BCE context was the word Messiah being thrown around yet or not? Not yet. Well, so yeah. So, okay. So this is interesting. The, those Psalms of Solomon that I just mentioned, um, there's a debate about whether they might've been originally written in Hebrew, but the only, the, the, the earliest version we have is in Greek mm. and it may have been that they were just written in Greek and there wasn't an older Hebrew version. And in the Greek Psalms of Solomon, it doesn't say Greek Messias for, for, um, Mashiach. Instead, it says Christos, oh. which is in the New Testament, when we read it, we transliterate it Christ. Mm -hmm. But in Greek, if, if you want to write uh, the word anointed in Greek, in ancient, in Koine Greek, you would write Christos, because Creo in Greek means to anoint. And so an anointed one or an anointed thing in Greek is Christos, whereas an anointed one in Hebrew is Mashiach. Mm. So in... Uh, in the Psalms of Solomon, like in the Septuagint, um, they mostly don't write, they don't transliterate, they translate. Mm. So they make it say anointed in the target language. Um, and well, uh, so if you say Christ or Christos in ancient Greek before Christian usage kind of made it sound like it was Jesus's name, mm. it was just the biblical, the Greek biblical translation of the anointed one in the Bible. Cool. Well, that's, yeah, I feel, I feel like that's important to, to understand. So in the Septuagint, in when, when they're translating the Hebrew Bible, those things that said Moshiach in Hebrew are now Christos in, in the Greek. 
Yeah, that's right. So before, in, I mean, in a way, it's kind of like the Christians took over the word, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in a sense. And so, which is why it almost sounds to us as if it's a name for Jesus. But, you know, at the turn of the first century, before the New Testament existed, the word Christos in Greek was a, it was a Jewish Greek word that was the standard translation for Mashiach. Mm. And so it just meant the anointed one, the anointed king or priest or whatever in the Septuagint, in some newly written Jewish Greek text like Psalms of Solomon. And then that's the context for then when it first, first gets used of Jesus in the letters of Paul and the Gospels. And then the Christians run with it. And then Jewish texts basic, well, Jewish texts for the most part stop using Greek after yeah. that. They write in Hebrew and Aramaic. And so <laughs> it's, it's kind of like they let the Christians have it in a way, uh, so, which, is, which causes a trick of the eye to us. Because when we read the word Christos, you think it's a Christian thing, but sure. it's not originally a Christian thing. So do you get a lot of these texts? I mean, you mentioned the, the Psalms of Solomon, but um, is, it, is it quite widespread in these Jewish texts that are just sort of sh- slightly earlier than the New Testament? Or is it, is it a relatively uncommon thing? Is relatively uncommon. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's surprising, isn't it? Because we imagine that that's kind of like the big deal. They're all longing for the Messiah. Yeah, I mean, there's there are more than a few. Uh, there's more of them in Hebrew and in Aramaic than in Greek. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the mid 20th century, there were quite a few references to messiahs. Um, but I say quite a few. I mean, compared to the volume of the scrolls, it's still a, a pretty tiny proportion. But um, but Helen's point there is quite right. We, because of kind of what the textbooks and so on say, we we kind of inherited an idea that comes from actually it comes from early Christian historiography that said, right, in the Roman period, the Jewish people were all awaiting the coming of a Messiah, and that kind of leads, you know, <laughs> triumphantly up to the Christmas story, to, you know, the, the, the birth story of Jesus in Matthew and Luke. I mean, historically speaking, though, that's not, like, objectively true of the period. Um, in a way, those, that textbook impression we have comes from a, a kind of uncritical reading of, well, like Matthew and Luke, mm. and some later Christian writers like Justin Martyr, um, that, that sort of told a story about what they uh, thought Judaism was like at that period, mm-hmm. which was a very theological story and very sort of self-congratulatory from a Christian perspective. And there is a kind of naivete in modern, uh, modern historiography around this. that We sort of take, take what Luke or Justin said about what the Jews thought and just take it as true when if you look at the Jewish sources from the time, it's it, that's not sort of a, an, a really apt description. Um, so that that is a really important piece to all this is uh, questioning where we get those kind of generalizations from. Yeah. I feel like this is something you you talk about in the books, which is we don't just have the Hebrew Bible, we don't just have some of these these you know first century BCE texts, but there's other peoples in the around in and around the Mediterranean that use this word. So, what did you find out about what Messiah meant to them? Um, yeah. So, I 
I think it is important to, and I try to in my in my research on the topic to kind of uh, situate this language in the ancient Mediterranean world more generally. Um, strictly speaking, though, uh, non-Jewish and Christian people in the ancient Mediterranean don't use the word Messiah or Christ, and that's because, uh, well, some. Um, ancient Near Eastern people, like sort of in and around ancient Israel, Canaanites and some Mesopotamians, like way back, there is some evidence that they might have anointed their kings like Mm -hmm. ancient Israelites did. So maybe a few ancient Near Eastern peoples did it, but uh, that was a local custom for how you mark a king. That was not the sort of universal custom for marking a king. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like how, uh, well, I mean, actually the monarch in the UK is anointed with oil because, because it's imitating biblical precedent, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but, but we more typically speak of a king being coronated or crowned if you're British, having a, yeah, having a (laughs) crown put on you. Right. Uh, but that, if you think about it, that's a particular idiom for saying what marks a king or queen, they, they have a crown put on them. A different idiom is they get anointed or they have oil poured on them. And so there are different local customs for uh, how you describe that kind of thing. And most ancient peoples don't call it anointing. And that's why if you go looking uh, for ancient references to anointed ones, you don't find them outside of Judaism and Christianity, basically. Mm. Um in other words, Messiah, you, it's one of those words that that's, it attains really wide usage, but it, it came from a very particular religious and language context. It's kind of, terms like karma is another mm-hmm. one, right? From a completely different, right? Mm-hmm. We use karma very uh, cross-culturally now, but it's a very particular, you know, South Asian religious term originally. Um, so Messiah is like that. Uh it wasn't widely used in the ancient world. It comes from a very particular Hebrew idiom for sacred people, like kings and priests. Uh, and then especially once the Christians started using it, it kind of takes on a life of its own. And so now people will, you know, people will talk about their own you know, favorite president, past or future, or, you know, as someone who is messianic or, or something like that, um, which is, which is a, a, a sort of far off extension of the term. Um, but that's, uh, the reason you don't find it in Greek or Latin sources for the most part is because that's not how they, that's not the language they used to mark out their Kings or priests. One of the really strange things I always think about Josephus is that he never mentions, um, messiahs or sort of messianic beliefs. And I I know, um, one of the explanations for that is that he's writing for Romans and he doesn't want to worry them by saying, you know, we are a group of people who are all looking for some kind of great ruler to come. Do you think then that that's the right explanation of why Josephus never mentions any kind of messianic expectation or, or would you say then actually it's just because it wasn't such a big deal? Uh, more the latter than the former, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so one, one reason people have made a big deal about Josephus quote unquote silence about messiahs is if people assume the kind of generalization I was talking about a moment ago, right? If they take, um, if they take for granted that when Luke says that 
pious Jews like Simeon or Anna were sitting around just waiting and waiting and waiting for the Messiah to come, <laughs> that that's what ancient Jews were like. Mm-hmm. Then you read Josephus, who writes, you know, <laughs> 25 <Squeeze>. volumes <laughs> of Jewish history, and he never mentions one. Mm-hmm. Then you say, wait a minute, what's going on? What? <laughs> If all the Jews were waiting for him, why isn't he talking about him? And then it people develop. Weird. Yes, that's right. Uh, people develop theories then that like he's um, he's writing in code, or you know he's sublimating it. He's being mm-hmm. deliberately uh, cagey, or uh, and I think those hypotheses, uh, which I do not go along with. I think the, the only reason people feel compelled to offer those kind of hypotheses is because they're assuming. Mm-hmm. A kind of, you know, a, a, a Lucan or other such story that, well, we should see those references mm-hmm. there. But if you realize, well, references to messiahs are relatively sparse in these sources because it's one of a hundred different topics that ancient Jewish texts talk about. There's no reason you should expect to see it everywhere. Then, then in a way, there's, there's not, the silence isn't something that needs explaining. Mm-hmm. The, the one other thing I'd say, uh, and I have written about this in another place, is that Josephus actually is not entirely silent. He does not write about uh, messiahs or Christs, except a couple of, as you know, uh, these controversial references mm-hmm. to Jesus, whom he calls Christ. But he talks relatively often about uh, Jewish would-be kings. Mm. And he says that they... Uh, uh, he says that they aspire to the kingship, the basileia or kingdom. He says that they wear the diadem or the crown. And those are Greek and Roman ways of marking a king. So actually, I think he's not entirely silent. He says what's going on. He just translates it. He says it in an idiom that is culturally intelligible. Because, as I was saying to Dave's question before, if you just write the word Christos in Greek, that's legible as an anointed person. But in Greek, people are not anointed, except maybe like athletes when they're wrestling in the gymnasium or something. Like that's, that's the only time you would put oil on a person. So if you call a person Christos, anointed, or in Greek, that just means oily. Right? <laughs> and there's, no, there's nothing about that that would suggest, oh, now we're talking about a, a king or a priest. And so, so, so Josephus uses the words you would use if you were writing in non-Jewish Greek. And he says kingship and he says crown. So it's actually, it's, it is there. Um, it, again, I, I think most of the problems in the scholarship on this come from certain kind of naive readings yeah. of the likes of Luke and Justin. And if you stop and think about that, then some of the problems kind of disappear. Well, all right. So we're talking about, assumptions a lot of assumptions and and kind of age-old truths that we're kind of questioning here so i know there's there's long been at least i the way i've been told that there was a big disconnect between the the jewish conception of a messiah and who jesus was like his his messianic um his arrival and and his and and so i always told that the jewish conception was kind of warlike and he was a king and and he he would you know, in battle, sort of defeat enemies, whereas Jesus's, you know, dominion was much more of a spiritual uh, kingdom that he was that he was bringing to the earth. So, 
is that are we getting that wrong <laughs> is, is is there not really a disconnect or like you said if they weren't necessarily talking well anyway i'm gonna let you talk i'm gonna let you answer that question is is there a disconnect like that we that we have always talked about uh yeah it will not surprise uh you that i will will say that's not that's not entirely right <laughs> it's, it's it's mostly not right there's there's a grain of truth in it right is that um the way Christians normally, and this is true of ancient and modern, the way Christians normally use the word and the way Jews normally use the word are, are different, right? Because Christians generally assume that it attaches to a particular person, Jesus, so that whatever they think is true of Jesus, they think is true of the Messiah. Whereas, you know, for Jews down the generations, for the most part, uh, and this is interesting, comp- complicated in interesting ways, but in... Uh, Judaism, uh, for the majority, the Messiah is still this kind of uh, hypothetical, something in the future. So, so, so the normal way people from the two religious groups talk about Messiahs is different in that respect. But that difference does not lie uh, in the fact that uh, for Jews, the Messiah is warlike, whereas for Christians, the Messiah is peaceful. That's not the difference. Uh, one reason for that, well, um, but the problem is because actually both of those generalizations break down on both sides. Uh, I mean, the Christian Messiah, um, there's a few classic texts that people think of that they get the idea that, oh, the Christian Messiah as such is uh, spiritual and, and peaceful, like in the Gospel of John, where uh, Pilate says to Jesus, I hear you're a king. What's up with that, right? Uh, are you a king? And Jesus says, uh, my, my kingship or my kingdom is not of this world. Uh, but in Christian texts, including the New Testament and some later ones, I mean, there are warlike images of Jesus and what he does. Now, in this, uh, well, I mean, in the Gospels, he dies exactly the way warlike Jewish messiahs die in the Roman period. That is, he gets rounded up by the Romans and executed. That happens to other Jewish messiahs in this period, as Josephus tells us. Um, But, you know, for instance, in the book of Revelation, Jesus is portrayed in the future, right, at his his return as a warlike conquering uh, king in ways that are not very different from the way the future Messiah is presented in some Jewish apocalypses. He wages the last battle. That's his job. So there you go. You have a warlike Christian Messiah. And likewise, on the Jewish side, there are actually quite a number of different types in various Jewish texts, various ways of imagining the Messiah. So, uh, I mean, often he's a king, and a king can be a warrior, but sometimes the king is portrayed as uh, a judge or a kind of wise lawgiver, or as a sage. Um, So there's plenty of Jewish messiahs that are not kind of political and warlike, and there are visions of the Christian messiah that are that. So so that's the sense in which the, the distinction that's familiar to most of us does break down, I think. Thank you. And what about Paul then? Because Paul seems to use Christ as a as a surname, really, doesn't he? He's always he talks about Jesus Christ many, many times. So, so what's going on with Paul? Yeah, Paul has uh, Paul has a way of using the word Christ 
that looks a bit funny to us. And it is where we get our habit in modern languages. Uh, you know, I mean, in Christian discourse all over the world, people will talk about Jesus Christ as if it's a double name for one figure. Um, uh, and that actual way of writing the words we get from Paul. Um, Paul is the earliest Christian writer. Uh, unlike the Gospels um, and a lot of other texts, Paul never has, Paul never y- uses the sentence, Jesus is the Christ, as if there's this role, Christ, and you could have a debate about whether Jesus is him or not, mm-hmm. right? Which, and all the Gospels have that, right? Who do people say that I am? Some say you're the Christ or not, you know, this, this kind of thing. Paul has none of that. He just says, he call, he, he's always referring to one figure. He can call him Jesus. He can call him Christ. He can call him Jesus mm. Christ, or he can call him Christ Jesus and flip the terms around. Uh, so from that, and from the, the true observation that we get our habit of the, the, the usage of those words downstream from Paul, a lot of, I mean, New Testament scholars have written that, well, Paul invents the use of it as a proper name. Uh, you can see why they think that, but that's not quite right either. Uh, I mean, so the, the um, in, in ancient terms, uh, since we're in the biblical time machine, uh, the way Paul writes Christ, you know, flipping the order around is exactly the way that ancient writers use what classicists call honorifics. And the classic example of this is the word Augustus. So the name of the emperor is Octavian. His title is emperor, but his honorific is Augustus. And he can be called uh, Augustus, or he can be called Octavian or Caesar, or he can be called Caesar Augustus, or he can be called Augustus Caesar. In other words, the word, the, his names are used in a pair and switched around. But like Augustus is not his actual surname. It means august hmm. or venerable awesome. or divine. That's exactly, yeah, that's right. That's what Chris, Paul writes Christos that way. Um, so, which is to say that is, that, that's the way that an ancient Jewish writer could use the word Messiah, knowing full well that it's not a surname. But it's, it's just the passage of years and, well, the passage of centuries and the transfer across many languages that, that makes us hear it as if it's a surname. But even for Paul, uh, it's not a surname. It's a uh, it's an honorific, oh, like Augustus. Oh, man, that's like that. That seems like you're dropping a huge bomb here. That seems like <laughs> to to say that our entire concept of of this Jesus Christ that everybody has said, like you said, for for centuries, was born of Paul's writing, and he was not using it in that way at all. That's that's huge. That's fascinating. Um, and you're confident of this. You feel. This make this is a <laughs> this is a foolproof theory. Uh, yes, I am as confident of this right. as I am about just about anything uh, in this whole area. And I mean, well, yeah, there's a there's lots more one could say about it. It has to do with the whole way the long reception of these biblical books and these terms in them uh, that we haven't time for here. But uh, I mean, it comes to it's it's. It's not just a trick. At first, I thought it was a trick of modern English, right? And other modern languages. Oh, we just, because we're not Greek speakers, we get it. We don't see it right. But uh, 
I discovered eventually that actually the editors of the Greek New Testaments that scholars use, uh, we actually get it from them. They make this decision uh, back in the early 20th century, several editions back in the critical New Testament that most scholars use. They made a decision to capitalize oh. the word Christos in Paul's letters and print it lowercase yeah. in the Gospels, which mm. if you capitalize it, to modern European language speakers, that makes it look like a name. Whereas if you leave it lowercase, it looks like a common noun, right? But that's a decision on their part. The ancient manuscripts don't do that. So anyway, there's a, there's a long and interesting story here about the kind of mainstreaming of Christ as a surname. Um, and it's not just kind of us naive, non-native Greek speakers. It's... Hmm philologists, scholars who made this decision. Um, so there's, uh, yeah, yeah it's a awesome. really fascinating story in uh, sort of the social history of modern biblical scholarship. Well, now, okay, so do you, do can we read anything more kind of theologically? I know we're, we're, we are, we're a history podcast, but I'm also interested in the theology part. Into Paul's conception of jesus if he's using it as an honorific does that change the way we should understand his understanding and belief in christ as well, i'm saying christ look i'm saying christ in jesus as um as the messiah does that change the way we should look at that uh yes i think so and this i mean this is a uh, a quite live discussion in pauline studies now um i mean the, this the last 10 to 20 years, there has been a new kind of willingness to reconsider whether Paul thought of Jesus as the Messiah. And if so, how does that work? What would he, what kind of idea of a Messiah does he have? And, and this has to do with theories about Paul's relation to Judaism. Um, mm. Some of which we touched on in the last time I visited you guys uh, on the podcast. So the main way, Paul was talked about in scholarship for most of the modern history of, bi of biblical studies since the late 18th century was that Paul uh, sort of de-Judaized the Jesus movement and transformed it into a Hellenistic religion. So that whole hypothesis has rightly come in for all kinds of critical scrutiny recently. But one piece of that is who exactly Paul understands Jesus to be because especially 19th century German scholarship loved the idea that Paul did not think of Jesus as the Messiah because uh, that was a Jewish category that these 19th century German scholars didn't want to, it was convenient for them for Paul not to think that they wanted for Paul to think of Jesus as a kind of uh, mm. a Hellenistic mystery religion, savior God or something like that. So, um, uh, so there's now a, a long overdue kind of reconsideration of what it means if Paul does think of Jesus as the Messiah and how his conception lines up with certain of, of the many ancient Jewish views on offer. Um, probably the most interesting one, uh, is that one main job a Messiah does in some Jewish texts is, uh, he shows up at the end of the age to, uh, cause the resurrection of the dead. And this is exactly actually what Paul mm. says about him most of the time. He rose from the dead 
because it's his job to then raise all the righteous from the dead. So something about, uh, I mean, actually a lot of what uh, Paul says about Jesus's death is actually technically it's about his resurrection. And uh, I think that is actually a key point. If you read a lot of Pauline sayings about the death of Jesus alongside some of these Jewish apocalypses where the Messiah shows up and raises all the dead, then a lot of mm. things fall into place uh, in really interesting ways. And what about Jesus himself? Does this make it more likely? I mean, I know this is an impossible question to ask um, and to, certainly to answer. Does it make it more likely that Jesus himself thought that he was a Messiah or the Messiah? Or are we still sort of uncertain about that? Yeah. Um, I mean, you will know this uh, far better than I. Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't think that all of this context makes it more likely that the historical Jesus himself was, uh, you know, self-identified as a Messiah or something like that. Um, yeah, I think Jesus gets executed by the Romans as a would-be king. And in Jewish terms, that's as a Messiah. And Nils Dahls famously argued this, and I think it's pretty spot on. Like, certainly by the crucifixion, Jesus is a Messiah because the Romans thought he was one, or in their terms, a king, right? And the Christians run with that. Um, there is, in the history of Jewish messianism, there's a very interesting and long tradition of people appearing as prophets, announcing the coming of a future Messiah or the coming of the kingdom of God. And then they get taken to be the Messiah himself. Hmm. Right. And that conceivably is the kind of thing you could see happening with Jesus. If, 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 you know, a lot of the kingdom of God sayings are more or less authentic. If he's talking about the coming kingdom of God, perhaps talking about some figure, a son of man, some, some sort of, viceroy of god who will be there at the end it would not be not at all unusual for the person who comes along as the prophet talking about it to be identified as the guy himself mm. i mean this happens with john the baptist right mm. right i mean uh he's talking about someone coming and then people think he's the guy uh and something very similar might have happened uh with jesus uh, wow so. well this this has been super fascinating um i encourage our listeners again to to pick up matt's books they got, they got two of them about this topic christ among the messiahs and the grammar of messianism matt thank you so much we we asked you like the hardest questions imaginable and you you hit them out of the park we appreciate <laughs> it um no we'll, problem for matt <laughs> we will He's think still of, smiling we'll, We'll look and then we'll come up with another incredibly difficult topic to bring you back to talk about. But um, thanks again. Thank you, Helen. And uh, thank you to our listeners. And this has been another excellent uh, episode of Biblical Time Machine. We'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.